So good afternoon. I think we have quite a treat here. Uh, I'm incredibly excited about our afternoon keynote speaker, and that's president of Epic Games, uh, Mike Capps. For those of you that don't know this company or this leader, it's truly an extraordinary story, and maybe in many ways, uh, not nationally, uh, but locally, a well-kept secret. Nationally and globally, incredible recognition for what Mike and his team have done. They built uh, arguably the finest gaming company in the world, and it's right here in Cary, North Carolina. They develop what I would call cutting-edge, mind-blowing games, and the beautiful thing about their model is they have this cross-platform gaming technology that has now been embraced and adopted by nine of the top ten publishers in the world. So nine of the top ten publishers in the world have adopted what Mike's and team have done. Their Gears of War platform that some of you may know has won some 30 Game of the Year uh, recognitions and awards, and I think some 13 million units have been sold. The Unreal Engine, with this unfair business advantage that he has created by having both a game publisher and having the 3D gaming uh, technology platform, has really created uh, an amazing company that now has some 650 employees uh, no investors, um, self-funded by customers, which is a beautiful way to do it, and a really unique both story and culture. And now mobile's the hot thing. So for those of you running around with Apple devices, there's this medieval sword fighting game that some of you may have seen, Infinity Blade, that's now the rave in the uh, handheld gaming world. And Mike told me a really neat story about this being introduced by none other than Steve Jobs at an Apple event in September, where it was Steve Jobs, then Mike, and then Chris Martin of Coldplay to give you a sense of how well this gaming world is now happening in the handheld world as well. So headquartered in Cary, North Carolina, and offices, Mike, if I remember, Warsaw, Shanghai, Seoul, Yokohama, 650 employees again, no investors. Mike has served many important leadership roles in his industry, including the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, as well as the Entertainment Software Association. Before he got into this crazy world that he's now in, uh, he was actually a professor at the uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, where defense and entertainment collaboration was a specialty, as was visual graphics, as was... Uh, virtual reality and computer graphics. In fact, a lot of his work at that time has already been recognized. For those that love the University of North Carolina, summa cum laude graduate, University of Chapel Hill, math and creative writing, then took his graduate studies to get a master's in computer science, double E at UNC Chapel Hill and MIT before he got his doctorate in computer sciences. Please welcome our epic hero, Mike Capps. Gracious. I guess you guys are now expecting the second coming. Thanks, Steve. That was uh, pretty friendly of you. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, like you said, uh, Epic's just down the street. We're a little game company. Um, been there for a while. We've been in the Raleigh area since, oh, about 1998, I'd say. Uh, 
I'm going to talk about some, I hope, interesting things to you today. Uh, we don't know the first thing about venture capital, and that's going to be the first thing I talk about. Really, the only funding we received was the power and the phone line in the parents' basement of the founder. That's pretty much it. Everything since then has been funded by customers. Um, so I don't know the first thing about venture capital, and I said, well, I'll sit down with some of the business guys at Epic. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about what we know, and we'll try to figure out what is this audience interested in. And about two minutes later, we were talking about adventure capital, which we start with us capital building, then we add aliens, and then we need cool starship troopers to fight the aliens, and then we put iPhones in the games, because everybody loves iPhones today. And then we're like, wouldn't it be cool if we made a gun that had iPhones in it? That would be awesome. So we go down that road for a little while, and then we come back to our original idea. There's explosions, the Eiffel Tower crashes over, because that happens in every disaster movie and game. And then we're thinking neoclassicist capital building? Boo, I want this cool Victorian structuralist expression capital building. That is the kind of adventure capital I want. So it's struck by lightning and it takes off into space. And as you can see, we don't know the first thing about venture capital, so I'm going to do my best to entertain you at least and talk a little bit about how my company was built, uh, but I'm not going to talk about debt to equity ratios or any of that stuff. All right, you with me? So Steve asked me today to talk about Epic's culture, to talk about our defining moments of what makes us successful. And I thought about that a bit, and, you know, what is culture? I guess I could slap a Merriam-Webster definition. But it's this mix of beliefs and values, and really that comes from how we respond in these defining moments. And I'm going to call those epic events because, well, it's my talk and I get to do that. So epic events that we've experienced over the past 20 years or so, how did we respond to that? That's what our culture really is. It's the stories that happened from 1991 when Tim Sweeney's in his parents' basement and he's thinking of what he's going to do and how he did it. And that story, I wasn't there for it, but I've heard the story and I use that story all the time and that's what helps me decide what to do today. And so what I'd like to do is kind of walk through, especially in a company like mine where all we do is tell stories. That's what video games are all about, is telling a story and letting you be a part of it. So what I'm going to try to talk to you about today uh, is these epic moments we had, the stories that came out of those, the lessons we learned, and then how we pass those stories down the line so we don't forget the lessons that we learned 10 years ago. Unfortunately, some of these lessons were terrible lessons, um, you know, that we repeat again and again these mistakes until we learn a new lesson and we have a new story. But I'm hoping that maybe you'll learn from our mistakes or you'll learn from our wins and these stories will be compelling to you. And if nothing else, you'll certainly understand our culture by the end of it. Um, and if nothing else, I'm going to present this to my company and we'll see what they think and maybe it'll help some of my new employees understand who Epic is. So I'd like to start with, um, I don't know if these lights will work. Yeah, we don't have any over there. So this is a quick montage of some of our games that we've released over the last two years or so.
So yeah, we have a lot of fun. We make stuff blow up in all sorts of different ways, whether it's with swords or guns or ships or whatever. No Eiffel Tower game yet, but we're working on it. All right, so to give you a little idea of, you know, Steve mentioned some of the numbers, um, but uh, what I think is most important is the way that people respond to these products. Uh, you know, here's somebody dressed up at a con as one of our uh, monsters. Uh, here's guys dressed up like the heroes of our games. They take it really, really seriously. Here's, I guess, the best Christmas present ever. That's right, honey, it's the chainsaw gun from Gears of War but I painted it pink for you. Um, here's a very Gears wedding. Um, and yes, she's got a Gears tattoo on the back of her shoulder. And in fact, those are pretty common out there, which is kind of scary to think that this thing that we argued about, whether it should have eight cogs or seven, would suddenly be on people all over the world. Uh, so uh, that's what it means. And it's got a really big cultural impact, even though we're only talking about 13 million having played the games. Um, the impact is pretty big beyond that. And it's sort of intimidating, but really exciting uh, to be part of that kind of business. Come on. There we go. Um, so next I want to talk a little bit about our tools. As Steve mentioned, we make this engine technology. It's used by a bunch of folks. It's uh, been licensed since 96. It's about 15 years now we've been sharing our technology. Um, this engine I keep talking about is the shared technology infrastructure. It's how physics work and how sounds are played. And most importantly, the tools for taking all of these different art assets and characters and animations and putting them all into a video game. Uh, we've won a ton of best engine in the industry awards. We've been doing, I guess it's probably eight years now of awards we've won in a row. Uh, hundreds of game teams worldwide are using it. Um, but you may not know that we also are using a number of different arenas. Uh, right here in the Triangle, there's companies using it for military simulation, uh, serious training applications. That's actually my previous world before getting into games was looking at using entertainment applications for training and simulation because that's what a soldier joining the army knows, is he knows how to play Gears of War and Halo. So how do we tap into that and use that to help them train on modern day equipment? There's TV shows. If your kids watch Lazy Town, that's made in Unreal Engine 3. There's movies that use it for previs. Um, and our tools are actually given away for free now uh, for non-commercial use. Uh, 700,000 users worldwide have downloaded them. And so I'm going to show you a clip of our tools in a second. But if you think this is cool and it makes you want to build something, please go download it right now and you can do it. These are the absolute best, I think, industry tools for making video games and virtual worlds. And you can download them right now and muck around with them, push a button and play it on your iPhone, uh, which is creating, I hope, a whole new universe of video game developers because it's that easy to do. So here's what the editor looks like.
hopefully you see that and you're saying, wow, I could do that. Yeah, it really isn't that hard. You should try it out. Okay, so let's start with some of our stories. And you've got an idea of Epic and what we've been up to. Um, it all started in 1991, college student in his parents' basement. I think every company starts that way. And he came up, what is the biggest, coolest name ever for a company that's trying to compete with the biggest? Epic Mega Games. Yes, we dropped the Mega sometime after the 80s. But at the time, it was the coolest name he had. And uh, this was our very first game. It's called ZZT. I don't know if you can see it there where it says Game World Number 1. And the reason it says Game World Number 1 is because ZZT was actually a platform. It was an editor. In fact, it was a text editor, and you kind of can tell because the Cinepleads are made out of capital Ds. Um, But this was a text editor that Tim wrote and said, I could make a video game out of this. And he's like, no, no, I could make a video game on top of this and then ship the tools. So our very first product... Here's uh, some of the artwork. Our art staff was the programming staff. Uh, there was one guy, so that's the why it looks so uncool. But anyway, um, we had people taking this ZZT tool set and making their own maps with it. And this was one of the first games that would let you do that. Um, so... If you bought ZZT, you got a copy of Town of ZZT, which was Tim's game on top of the tool set, and you could download other people's tools. So you got this huge value for your money, right? There's tons of games being built on top of it. And of course, Tim was doing very well at the time because people were buying the game not for his Town of ZZT game, but for the platform. And so this was a huge lesson for us. We released a best of compendium of games made out on the internet, and we learned this lesson day one in the company. We should give away our tools. And that's something that stuck with us for 20 years is that we create a really engaged fan base. Because the real fans aren't just the ones who play it and love it, but they're the ones that wish they could make it better. And they're doing more, and that's building the franchise, it's building this property, and this game stayed alive and was selling for a long, long time. And that's something you see throughout our history. We have million-dollar contests now for making content with this. We partnered with NVIDIA once. Intel put one of these together. So this is a huge part of our business of getting people excited about using our tools to add on to our games. So this part is kind of boring, so I'm going to skip through it. Uh, I do want to talk a bit about the business of the mid-90s. We got a new shield. Um, It looks like kind of a shield and underpants. But anyway, that's the old logo. We replaced that. Um, We were publishing at the time because there were video games would be one guy three months in his own parents' basement making a game. Uh, So small projects. And Epic was sort of a publisher helping them get attention uh, for their products. Um, We were fully distributed. And by that, I mean no two people lived within 100 miles of each other. Um, There were seven or eight employees of Epic, and they were literally all over the world, uh, Northeast, Canada, West Coast, uh, Holland, et cetera. And games were sold on the shareware model. That is, we'd give away the first map of the game, maybe the first two hours of the game, and then we'd charge you for everything else. If you think of Doom, if you remember that game, that was a shareware game. Eventually, they made a retail product and put it in stores, but at first it was just shareware, where we hope that you'll buy the rest of it, and we really hope you won't pirate it. Um, Now, this sounds really cool now, because this is freemium, and it's free to play with microtransactions, and the VCs who are interested in the games industry but don't know much about it think this is the new wave of games, but it's really what we were doing to years ago, which is give some away, get them hooked, and then charge them. Um, I do think that more and more games are moving to that model, but it's been around for a while. So that's what Epic was at the time. So our big game, next step, making Unreal. So this was our first big project. 
shipped in 1998, we learned some really valuable lessons. It shipped with an editor, and that Unreal editor went on to become the basis for all of the engine tools that we're shipping today. Um, it went really slowly because we had eight guys who were all in different time zones, essentially. I mean, it was an awful way to build a big piece of software. So we got everyone together. Uh, Lord knows why Canada was picked. I think there were two people sort of close to Canada, and so and they had an apartment big enough for everybody to jam into. So uh, we all jammed in an apartment they. I wasn't with the company just yet. Um, and uh, what did we learn about doing this? We were very successful. Unreal was sort of our big name maker. First of all, we learned distributed development is terrible, and we're never going to do this again. And this has been a part of our history ever since, that we don't hire people off-site. Everyone comes to Raleigh. Everyone works together. And if you've got people in another city, they make a different game, because you can't get the action of making a video game and the fun and the iteration process if you're spread out. Um, uh, maybe that's not the right lesson, but it's one we learned very thoroughly. We also learned Canada sucks, and so therefore, um, we looked all over the world to find a new home, and here we are in North Carolina. Um, really quite random. Uh, where's there a good airport that's a hub? Well, we're not a hub anymore, but still a good airport. Where's it cheap to live, and where's the weather better than Canada? And those three things together, and there was some talk of universities and hiring, but really it came down to those three things. They picked North Carolina, even though none of the employees were from there, uh, and uh, voila, here we are in North Carolina. Okay, so Unreal, I don't know if you can see here uh, in the text, it says this is an actual screenshot. The idea being that in 1997 when this cover came out that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between reality and that character on the screen, uh, in the magazine. So the games industry's come a long way since then. Right now it looks absolutely retarded to me, but I tell you what, at the time it was blowing people's minds. And that technology was making a huge splash for this game that the gameplay itself wasn't. And this game started as a magic flying carpet ride, I think was the initial name, and it was just fly around in a cool 3D space. And then it became this game where you're uh, a lost prisoner number 869 trying to escape from a planet filled with aliens, and there were explosions, of course. Uh, so uh, we found that this technology was really useful for us and that the graphics were selling the game. We were getting covers because it was amazing graphics no one had seen before. What a great lesson that was, that uh, if we work with these tech vendors, we work with the game companies of, the, gosh, who were the hardware companies back then, 3DFX, Voodoo for their Glide API. Um, selling $300 graphics cards is hard. Those companies need things to sell them to because it's not the CAD guys that sell graphics cards. It's the game guys that sell graphics cards. The graphics cards manufacturers loved us. They worked with us and they got us everywhere, every trade show. Suddenly we were at the Consumer Electronics Show with a video game, which just didn't happen that much and it was because of this attention. And so we worked with them and pushed their technology in the direction we thought would be best for gamers. Make it cooler, make it faster, more memory. If you do that for us, we're going to make it shine. We both get a lot of attention. So that was a huge lesson for us, is that if we're on the cutting edge of technology, instead of following along what everybody else is doing, it's a lot harder. It's a huge investment to be just five steps ahead of everybody else, but it pays off in this kind of attention. So... That was lesson number three, four, I forget. All right, so Unreal Tournament was our next product, and this was built on top of the original Unreal 1 game. We made some mistakes with Unreal 1. The networking code wasn't really very good, and we thought, we can, in six months, we'll knock out sort of an improved version of Unreal, and we'll see how that goes. Um, at the time, the games industry is changing a lot, so I'll stop and, and explain. We've become like the publishing business. 
or the book publishing business where you've got some notion of an advance in royalties, games are getting more expensive to make. And so suddenly you're looking at a couple million dollars maybe to make a good video game. And that's a whole lot for somebody who's in their parents' basement. And so what we would do instead was go to a publisher and convince them that, no, really, we have an office. We're a legitimate company. And they'd give us a million or two dollars to make it up front. We'd earn it with a recoup against royalties. And that's still how AAA gaming is done today. Um, we had a dispute with this publisher on this little six-month project. Um, it really doesn't matter what the dispute was, but the point was this game was done, ready to ship, and then we hit a legal snag. And so the guys sat around and kept making it better, uh, gold-bricking the game, adding cool features to it that in any business you would say, what are you doing? We can't afford to keep stacking stuff onto this game. But it was brilliant. And everything you know about Unreal, if you're a fan, the headshots and the multi-kills and the uh, alt-fire, which like every shooter uses alt-fire now and came from this game, was in that six months. And it sold like hotcakes. It was huge. It was twice as big as Unreal. And so we learned this great lesson, which is once you think a game is done, then sit and polish it for another six months. And it sounds like a silly lesson, but it was huge. And it's fundamental to why Epic is the company is today. Because we are convinced that if you spend too much time making a game too good, that it will actually pay off. That you're not looking for that perfect place of spend just enough time and just enough money and maximize revenue. No, we do it the other way. And it keeps working for us really well. And it scares me sometimes to think back to if that game had shipped at six months and we hadn't had the publisher dispute. And it would have gone out and would have done another million and a half units instead of four million units. It would have been good money, good quality. We would have been proud of it. And we would have learned a totally different lesson. And we wouldn't be epic at all today if that had happened. So... Pretty cool. Okay. So in this same time, this is sort of a lifelong lesson at Epic. I talked to folks and tried to figure out when did we learn this lesson, and I can't tell you, so I'm just going to say it's the whole time. Um, but Unreal Tournament really cemented this lesson. The way you make games is all about iteration. You come up with a cool idea. Adventure capital. We're going to take this neoclassicist capital and blow it up a lot. And you say, that's cool, but it would be so much better if... It's the uh, Eiffel Tower. Now it's cool. Now it looks like a spaceship, right? So you start with this idea. You keep improving it till it's fun. I promise even this talk, after I've given it more than once, is going to be pretty good. Uh, but right now, it's a little rough, right? But it's going to get better. We're going to iterate. Um, the trick to this is failing cheaply. And you, everybody knows that in business. You want to fail often, fail cheaply, and find success. Well, in video games especially, it's really useful to fail cheaply at that early stage of, here's my idea. No, here's what's wrong with it. That's better. Now let's start putting it on graph paper. Okay, well, it's really cheap to throw away graph paper if that didn't work. Now let's build some rough geometry. Um, so we generate lots of ideas. We test them as simple as we can, kill the bad stuff, and just keep refining. Um, here's an example of uh, video game construction. This was from around uh, 2002, 2003. Um, this is one of the levels in Unreal Championship 2. Uh, Anthony made this concept art in, I want to say, about a day and a half or so. Um, there's parts where we erased and said, that's not cool. Let's add the obelisk. We made some changes to it. It's really cheap, really easy to fix this. And the next step, we start building rough geometry. Uh, this is uh, BSP geometry. This is that level with only the things you need to be able to play this level and start having fun in it. So we built it out, and we said, gosh, that middle space isn't big enough for rocket fighting. Let's make it a little bigger. Okay, all right, well, that was fun. Hey, there's no easy way to get from this area to this area. Let's add some stairs. And we play it right now. It's ugly as sin, but it doesn't matter because it's fun. If the game's fun, we keep doing it until we fix it. So it's really cheap to fix at this stage. Um, one of these geometric spaces, I know it looks like it would be hard, but it takes about... I don't know, six, eight hours to build. And then we play test it for an hour, the guy goes back to work, and we play test it the next day and repeat. 
Um, once you start adding the 3D geometry and you're building these pieces uh, to make it look more like that original concept, now's when the real expense comes in. Now you're spending a week to build the little trim pieces over the door. You're spending a week of lighting this level perfectly so that it comes out with an end result like this. This stuff is a lot more expensive. So you want to fail earlier in the process. And that's something we learned over and over again in our video games. The Unreal Tournament, I think, really cemented that lesson, iterate and win. And we still use it in all our products. And in fact, we use it everywhere else. Uh, my performance review system at work, I'm really proud of it. And I like our HR processes. But every six months when we come to do it again, we think of how can we make it better. And we're constantly looking for ways to iterate and improve everything at Epic. And it comes from the way we make games. Okay, so there's a downside to this, of course. Um, I, I worry that we've learned the wrong lesson while learning the right lesson. Um, the wrong lesson is there's no such thing as a bad idea. Because you can start with something as dumb as adventure capital, and then you can say, well, that's stupid. Come on, nobody's going to want to play that video game. You say, well, remember the last time I had a dumb idea? It was to put a chainsaw on the end of a gun, and then everybody said it was stupid, and then you played it, and it wasn't any fun, and then we added the sparks coming off of it. It was kind of cool, and everybody said, no, I don't like it, and then we made it make a really revving chainsaw noise, and now it starts being fun, and then we added blood splatters on the screen, everybody loved it, and it became, oh, well, we can do that to Adventure Capital, right? We'll just keep investing and keep iterating, and then it's going to be fun. Just give it some more time, man. So that's a really dangerous lesson. And I think we're still learning that balance of when do we kill something versus we can iterate and fix anything. So I'm convinced that I can make any idea fun given enough time, but that's obviously not the most efficient way to make games. Uh, so that notion of detecting blind alleys, I think, is what separates the best lead designers. Uh, Cliff Blazinski, our famed design director, is really good at saying that's not going to work and knowing why it's going to be a blind alley. And uh, that's something we're getting better at as a company, but we've sort of overlearned this lesson. Okay, so we finished Unreal Tournament, and now the question is, what are we doing next? Well, we've got this new engine, Unreal Engine 2, that's coming online, and it's bringing a lot higher detail. It's going to be bigger, cooler video games. It's going to look way better than before, but we're going to need larger teams to make this game. We're actually going to start specializing more. You can't just have a modeler who makes 3D stuff now. Now you need a guy who's good at organic modeling, because making a character is a totally different process than making a, a vehicle, for example. One is sort of a mechanical sense, and one is a character. It's organic. So we need to specialize some. And some of those skills are only useful at the end. The guy who likes that level, you don't need him until the very end after it's all fun. So if you've got that process, now you really need to be doing iterative development and make sure that you're not doing the lighting until the end. But what do you do with the lighting guy at the beginning? It used to be everybody was a game artist and they could do anything because we're all generalists. But once you specialize, now you've got this problem of specialists who you shouldn't be using now because that's too expensive or you're going against rule 14 or whatever it was, iterative development. And planning ahead was not epic specialty. We had 20 guys, best jazz band ever, nobody in charge. So what did we do? We made levels for the last game while we were sitting around trying to figure out what to do next. We made a lot of levels. We made an entire bonus pack. And we gave it away to our fans, and our fans loved that. And then we made another bonus pack and another bonus pack and another bonus pack. This is a really bad business model to keep giving stuff away. We actually learned one good lesson, which is giving stuff to your fans makes them happy. Uh, but it's not a great way to make money. We did keep that product alive longer than maybe it would have otherwise, but it's not the most efficient way to do it. So we learned you've really got to overlap your product schedules. That's crucial. You've got to find a way to be finishing one game and have your specialists who are in-game folks finishing that game and your startup guys working on the next game. And that's something that's really hard to do. Uh, we also learned keeping your fans happy is a win, and, and that's something we did a lot of. 
So in 2002, we started licensing out the Unreal IP. We were so successful with that, we said, hey, let's have somebody else make Unreal 2, let's have someone else make Unreal Tournament 2, and we'll create this new IP, because we're great at creating IPs, we'll call it Warfare, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, unfortunately, both those projects slipped dramatically, like by 100% or so. Uh, and uh, it was in great uh, part due to us not paying enough attention to those products, kind of leaving them on autopilot, being busy on our own game, and then checking in and saying, oh no, this is completely wrong, that's not Unreal at all, it was, it was a real mess. Again, because Epic really wasn't very structured from a management perspective at the time. So we took Unreal Tournament 2 back in-house, and then slipped it some more ourselves, trying to fix it, stopped Warfare, our big new IP, everybody crunching on this other game that somebody else made and didn't finish, everything reviewed poorly, it was a real mess. And the lesson we learned is that it's impossible to make products out of house. That's not a great lesson to learn either, but that's the one we learned at the time. Don't manage external production. Also, don't scale production. We can't do it. We just don't have the management strength for this. We need to say small, tight, and nimble. But you'll notice that that kind of doesn't match with the thing we said before, which is that you need to have multiple projects to be successful. You need to be overlapping those schedules to take advantage of specialization. So we've got a mess here. Um, the other thing we learned is don't set a date. On Unreal Tournament, we didn't set when it was going to ship. Uh, and thank God we didn't because we slipped it six months, unbeknownst to us. And if we told all our fans it's going to come out this day, they'd have been upset with us. Both of these games slipped a ton. And so we went with what was cool in video games at the time. We'll ship it when it's done, man. That's when you get it. Which is a really neat idea unless you're trying to coordinate a multi-national uh, marketing plan and distribution plan into retail. right? So that was our cool idea. Screw it, man. We'll ship it when it's ready. That's when you'll get it. We'll let you know. Um, this was a very bad lesson. Okay. So uh, we said we're not making Unreal at Epic, and this is actually where I come into the story. Um, what we'll do is we don't want to grow, and we don't want to have anybody far away, but we know if they're far away, we won't talk to them, so we need somebody close. So we came up with this crazy idea to have multiple overlapping games with small Epic and Scion Studios down the hall in the same building. So it's a separate company, so we don't have to worry about all the overhead of managing you know, 40 guys. It'll be 20 in each room, and we'll be close enough that we'll come together. It was this crazy, like, it's the worst of all possible worlds plan, but that's what we did. I came in to run Scion Studios, um, saw the guys down at the hall at Epic, thought it was a nutty plan, but they were willing to fund my company and make video games, so I was cool with that. We worked on Unreal Championships. Actually, some guys in the room who worked on that with me, um, and we moved forward. So now there's two companies. What happens next is Unreal Engine 3 comes to life. We've been playing around with this for a couple years or so, and I've been talking about the difference in quality between Unreal Engine 1 and Unreal Engine 2. I hope you can see the difference between the quality in these character models here. Um, the difference between Unreal Engine 1 and Unreal Engine 2 in terms of uh, detail is about a factor of five. So we went from a couple days to build a character to a week, week and a half to build a character, and then we increased by a factor of 100, and characters become 10 to 12 week processes. So this is a huge upscale in everything in making video games. And when you hear about $20 million budgets, it's our fault. So uh, that really threw a, a chunk into what we're doing. And most importantly, we've got this game we're making, Warfare. It's based on Unreal Engine 2. Unreal Engine 3 looks awesome. 
it just totally blows away anything that's ever been done before, including our own game. So what do we do? Do we keep finishing this game that we spent two years on, or do we bet on the new tech? Well, this is obvious, because I've already learned this lesson. I know exactly what to do. We give away the two years of work to our fans, because, hey, that's a lesson we learned, right? Give stuff away. And Warfare became an Unreal Engine 3 game, and it eventually became Gears of War, because we know that if we're on the bleeding edge of technology with a game, we're going to get a lot of attention for that game, and the platform vendors are going to be very excited about our title. Right? We could have shipped this as an old-looking game in 2005, and instead, uh, in 2006, we shipped it, and it was a huge success. Uh, a lot of folks say that if you're going to be small, you've got to be efficient, because that's the thing you have, right? You can be agile against a large company. And we instead learned that you don't have to be that efficient. We threw things away all the time at Epic. It's really about throwing the right things away. It's about making agile decisions. Boy, howdy, the number of times I've upset everybody at the office by saying, guess what, that thing that we were all working really, really hard on Friday night and maybe Saturday night and Sunday night too, we canceled it. But here's a really good reason why. And if I can convince them that it's right, they all go, wow, that makes sense. I wish we'd have figured it out Friday. And I say, I wish we had too. And we move on. And no hard feelings because that's how this industry works. It's a very constantly moving industry. So we got away with it. About this time, we're realizing that if we're ever going to make a game like Gears of War on Unreal Engine 3, 20 guys isn't going to do it. We're going to need a serious management team, and we're going to have to scale up. The things we've learned, we cannot do, and the whole reason we have this company right down the hallway. So what do we do? We merge the companies together. We got a better logo. Um, that's very important when you have a merger. And uh, my management team, which was sort of a more structured group, and of course I came from a military organization, uh, we took that management team, and they took over the combined company management. So it was basically Epic's money and our management team and it's been working great ever since. Uh, so now we've got people. Now we can make some big bets. Up to now, we've been a PC company, and the PC business was smoking until P2P piracy basically destroyed it. I sometimes see 70 to 1 pirated to purchased ratios for my games. So that's really sort of a disheartening business to be in. We're still in the PC business. I just shipped another PC game in February. Um, but the PC business could not sustain our company. Also, where were people excited right now? They're all talking about the PS3 Emotion Engine and the new Xbox 360 hardware. That was what was getting everybody excited. And we've learned this lesson. We need to be on that cutting edge of tech, be where the platform vendors are going so they're excited about us. So we made a bet. We talked about it and said, we think, I'm going to talk in some jargon for a minute, DirectX 9 shaders are going to be what's on all the platforms. So we took a heck of a bet. A lot of people thought we were crazy, but we were pretty sure that that figure I showed you, that Unreal Engine 3 quality, was what everybody was going to be doing. So we picked that point in space and aimed at it as fast as we could, hoping that everyone would really be there. To give you an idea of the difference in complexity, this is an Unreal Engine 2 character model. I know it looks a little wacky. That's because uh, you can see like the gloves over there in the middle of that top texture. That's A painter did that. And he figures out where the gloves are going to be in that 3D model, and he paints that in a little square. So it's a hard, it's a technical job for a painter, right? It's not just painting. You've got to figure out where to do it, how to unwrap that model into that space there. Um, this is what it's like now for painters. So this is a series of material expressions, a mathematical expression of emissive uh, components, specular, highlighting, etc. So you still paint that, but you're painting in 3D data as well, normal maps. That graph there was built by an artist. This has kind of changed the job of artists and the number of people needed to do these kind of projects. So there's this huge, huge, huge complexity increase in making video games, which used to just be paint some cool stuff. 
which was awesome for us because we see technology is diverging a little bit, but we found a way that we can talk to all the, the different platform guys and push them to do what we think is best for gamers, which is this. We're ahead of everybody else. We set sort of the flag in the future and said, you guys should be here. The platform vendors looked at it and said, that's awesome. And everybody wanted to be there and didn't want to be the ones left out. Uh, in fact, for this generation, everybody got there except for Nintendo. They made a, a, a platform that couldn't handle shader technology. But everybody else got there, which was huge for us. Um, a little bit of history. This was us convincing Microsoft to put 512 megabytes of memory into the Xbox instead of 256. It was a billion-dollar decision, and they made it based on this picture because on the left, there's creatures and detail, and on the right, there's just not much going on. So we cost them a billion dollars. I'd say we actually made them a few billion dollars because it kept them competitive in the market, which was awesome for me because now there's this huge problem in the games industry. Tools are really, really, really important. You need a structure like that to be able to hook all those things together to make a texture. Budgets are going from $2 million that I mentioned just, what, four years ago, to $20 million on a, on a big-sized game. So the tools are more important, and everybody's still making PlayStation 2 games. So I've got this wonderful market position of aiming far ahead at a platform that doesn't exist while everybody is basically doing the grasshopper thing. Uh, so we're all ants, and we are in this excellent market position. There's not many competitors because most of them have not aimed this far ahead. And the one big one got purchased by EA. Thank you very much, EA. So they're pulled off the table, and there's a giant gap in the industry. We signed a few bell cow deals then. Uh, we convinced uh, Midway to take a chance on us. Uh, bless their souls, RIP, but at the time uh, they were making Mortal Kombat and sports games and racing games, and they took our engine, which was traditionally a shooter engine, and said, we can do anything with this. And we said, yes, you can. We signed that, and then it just kept coming, and we had huge success out of that. Um, at the same time, this game business, as I said, it's changing a lot because of these huge budgets. Um, if you don't have a hit, you can't make money. If you're, selling, if you're spending $20 million to make a game, not including marketing and distribution, call it a $50 million spend, you have to sell a million units just to break even, maybe a million and a quarter. And there's not a lot of games that sell a million and a quarter units at $50 these days. Maybe 15 a year, 10 a year, everybody else loses money. And so what happened was lots of consolidation. The companies that could manage a whole portfolio could, could basically hedge that risk by shipping 10 or 20 games were successful, and the little independent studios made one game, maybe they're successful, they make another game, they're not successful, they're out of business. That's it. They get purchased, bought up. Uh, we've been lucky to have a lot of hits and also have an engine business to sustain us through times while we're working on games, but the games industry changed a lot in this time period. And again, we feel a little bad about that. Okay, so we made this big bet on Gears of War, uh, Xbox 360 exclusive title. Microsoft was so excited because we showed off their technology. We all worked together. We drove cutting-edge tech, which is the lesson we've learned. If we're on the edge, everybody's following us. A lot of people bought Gears of War just to show off their HD television set and their Xbox 360. We fought Microsoft a lot about having a public release date. This was, you know, the lesson I've learned before. Don't set a date, right? Well, they said, we've got to, we've got to. I can't make a giant entertainment launch that makes history but not know when it is until the week before. I was like, yes, you can. We've done it before. And they're like, no, really. That was not a real big entertainment launch. We'll show you what a big entertainment launch was. And my God, we had one. Lindsay Lohan got drunk at my party. It was awesome. So... Uh, we finally gave up in August, and we said, yes, we will commit to November, because we were practically done by then. So we said, yes, we'll do it, and oh my God, it exploded. It was huge, and it was such a wonderful lesson, which was, if you have the right partner who is totally aligned with you on success, and you pick a date and you hit it, 
wow. And so that's the new lesson we've learned. So we threw out the old lesson about the whole ship it when it's done thing. That's dead to us. Okay. We also learned a lot of tactical lessons about how to manage a team and make a game and manage creativity. I gave a talk at the NCEDA conference a little while ago about that. That's out of scope for today. I'm trying to stick to businessy stuff. Okay. So um, we started acquiring studios, still thinking that those external studios would be working on their own projects because God knows we it's really hard to manage external development. We're better at managing now. We've got a better management team, but we're still not good at figuring out how to make magic happen across the internet. It's a lot easier to do it when you're all in one room. So we bought a studio in Warsaw, and they're making Bulletstorm. Uh, they just finished that, shipped in February. It was really fun. Um, I think it had the most uh, descriptors of violence and such on the back of a box of any video game in history, so go team. Um, uh, chair ship shadow complex on xbox live arcade which was called the number one game of all time uh, uh for xbox live arcade which was a pretty cool feather in their hat uh bullet storm well we had snoop dog across the street just last week so you know uh, we haven't learned a lot about this yet we're still kind of figuring it out um uh, we're warming up to it though because we've had some success uh uh, another game I'll talk about in a minute done by one of our external partners was called the best game of the year on iPhone. We've got the best game in Xbox Live. They're making cool stuff that we're really proud of. So in 2008, we learned an interesting lesson about competing with ourselves. Um, so the first Gears did super well. Steve talked about it better than I will. Um, and everyone expects the sequel to be bigger. You know, the movie business, when you make Die Hard 2, nobody's thinking, well, this one better be three and a half hours long. And I don't want to just have that McLean guy. I want Schwarzenegger in there, too, or it's not enough. But in the games business, people expect it all the time. They think, well, you've already solved the problem of what Gears of War gameplay is. The last one was, you know, 60 bucks for 10 hours. Well, I want 20 hours. Uh, and the development team is the same way. They also want to do all those things that they had to cut from the last one to make that date that we set. Uh, they want to do something bigger and better. Um, and that's not such a bad thing, right? Um, so Gears of War 2, in the end, we had about 50% more online content and about the same in campaign content, so it was a lot longer. It was way more polished because we took a lot of the same basic mechanics and polished them for an extra two or three years. And we got the same review score, and we sold about the same. Um, which could be really disheartening, except honestly, we were pretty happy because the first one sold really well and had one of the best review scores of all time. So that's okay. Uh, but uh, the lesson that we learned is that it's fine to compete with yourself. You want to. You want to compete with your competitors, but competing with yourself, trying to outdo yourself, is absolutely fine. And we're working on Gears of War 3 now, and it's hugely bigger than Gears of War 2, and it's going to be awesome. Um, and we learned that lesson, but I do worry about the long-term viability of constantly increasing the size of my games by 50%, but selling it for the same price. I'm not sure how this is going to go. Ask me around Gears of War 6. Okay. Next game we made, Infinity Blade. Um, this is one of our sort of apply the lessons. So I've learned all these valuable lessons. I've been telling these stories about Tim and his parents' basement and why it was Unreal Tournament so successful. I tell guys at work all the time about that. And now we're making Infinity Blade. We just want to apply the lessons. We're seeing mobile. It's blowing up. Everybody's got a friggin' iPhone in the room uh, or some ancient other device. Uh, the gap between the games you could buy on an iPhone... It's huge with what that phone could do. We, we were playing with the hardware and saying we can do something that looks a hundred times better than anything we see, literally, like from a detail perspective, a hundred times better. So this is a market that's just waiting for us. So we canceled a project that had been months in development and said, no, 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 let's make Infinity Blade instead. Let's leap onto this platform. If we can talk to the guys at Apple and find a way to be an excitement 
exciting thing for them. How do we do that? Well, we talked to them. There's Steve Jobs. I guess we wore the same thing. That's kind of embarrassing. Um, at the Apple show in September that Steve mentioned, there's, there's me showing off the game with Donald. This is Steve Jobs saying, it's on a phone, which is exactly right. They were blown away. Their executive team actually cursed when they saw the game for the first time, which is a warm, fuzzy feeling. And a lot of people who download the game said the same thing. My phone can do this, and that's just where I want to be. It's where we've learned we should be, is blow people away with what their phone, what their PC, what their Xbox can do, because that game got a ton of attention. And we're in every Apple ad all over the world because it makes their phone look incredible. And that was great for us. And the game sold really, really well. Oops, I'm back one. The game sold really well. It's still selling today, and uh, it was a great lesson for us. We made a fun game. I'm really happy with the game, but I know that the graphics is what pushed that game forward and helped it to do so well. And of course, now that I've got a strong game on the iPhone, I've got an engine that works well on the iPhone, and we're selling the engine for iPhone, and we actually released the tools for free to the Android development kit, so you can make iPhone games at home in high school. It's awesome. All right. So this is what we're doing now. I showed you a little bit of a clip of this. Uh, This is what a PC can do in real time right now. This is better than a lot of movies that were coming out four or five years ago in terms of detail. And you can do it on a PC that you put together with parts today. Um, You know, I talk through the tech, but you don't care. All you know is that looks really realistic, right? Great. This is something that video games can't do and a lot of movies can't do yet. And we built this and maybe spent almost a million dollars making this demo just to show Sony what a PS4 could do. Just to show Microsoft what an Xbox 720 or whatever the heck they're going to call it is going to do. We want to show them that this is the next version of technology. And if you're not there, the other guys might be. PCs are already there. You have to, you know, wire together three, $400 cards or something like that to make it work. But you can do it now, and we all know what that means in the PC business. Give it six months, and you'll be able to do it on a laptop, right? Uh, hell, give it two years, and you'll be able to do it on an iPhone. So we need to aim pretty far out. We're trying to convince the vendors right now, take a risk with us on this. So that's all the stories that I'm going to talk to about today. Um, um, what our next story is, of course, we don't know. There's a lot of epic events coming for us, though, and I'm pretty excited. Uh, it's a time where there's a lot of fear in the games industry, but also a time where there's a lot of opportunity. Um, uh, everyone's a gamer again, right? I, I would, I'd be shocked if everyone in this room hadn't played a video game sometime in the past year. And that didn't used to be the case. There was this time when Pac-Man and Atari 2600 came out, 70% of us self-identified as gamers. And that was down to 30% four years ago, five years ago. And now everybody plays a little tiny bit of Farmville or a little bit of something on their iPhone. Infinity Blade, you could be buying it right now and downloading it, actually. But whatever, you don't have to. Um, So everyone's a gamer, and this is huge. These snack-sized games are huge. Everybody wants to play for a minute in the elevator because they're bored with life and real people. Real people are boring. Talking them over the internet, now that is hot, right? Um, Free games, social games where you can socialize with people that you could be talking to now, but instead you're socializing with words with friends or whatever, because that's a very safe interaction, I guess. I can words with friend with my mom, but I can't tell her I don't love her or whatever. Yeah, anyway. Um, And blockbusters are still doing well. Um, Call of Duty sold a billion dollars worth in a year. Rock Band two years ago, maybe music business isn't doing so well in games now, but it was a billion dollar franchise. So these are huge games. You've got to be a hit to do that well, but I'm hoping Gears of War 3 is going to be a hit like that. So we've got all sorts of neat things going on where everyone's a gamer, everyone's playing games, and we're finding different ways to sell. And of course, we have new engine. I showed you that Samaritan video is Unreal Engine 4, so it's coming. We've got new consoles just around the corner. Um, Nintendo announced this week the Wii 2, or they haven't given it a name, but it's coming. They're going to show it in uh, June. So it's coming fast, the next generation. This is an exciting time. Uh, iPad 2, nine times performance over last year. 
that's a pretty steep curve, and it's going to be really exciting to see what we can do with games. Uh, so I don't know what the story is going to be, but I can tell you it's going to be a lot of epic events, which is going to mean a lot of stories, and hopefully we learn some good lessons. So what's the takeaway? I mean, these are our stories. Uh, I really don't know if you can learn from them. Um, I hope that they're memorable stories, and you can say, oh, wow, they learned that lesson, and it's been working for them, and I can learn from it too. Probably not, but I hope at least I entertained you. Uh, the real takeaway to me is that stories are a technique that we use in culture to ensure that lessons of the past aren't forgotten. Because stories are a lot more interesting than lessons or statistics. Saying that you have a 22% higher survivability chance from wearing a seatbelt is not very convincing. But saying, oh yeah, Mary and Jim were driving down the road and stopped suddenly and Jim flew through the windshield, but Mary didn't because Mary was wearing her seatbelt. That's a story and it sticks with you. And you're like, gosh, I could have been Jim, uh, which is... Cool. So using stories makes a lot of sense, and you've got to have storytellers in your company. It doesn't need to be your leaders. It can be anyone, and they don't need to have been there, which I think is really fascinating, because half the stories I just told you, um, they're in my heart and my head, and I use them all the time, but I wasn't actually there for them. It's probably not actually what happened, but it doesn't matter because it's part of our lore at Epic. So my advice to company leaders is watch for these events as they occur because you can catch them not just in the company but in your life because individual stories are part of what makes an authentic leader, right? Um, Note when they become company lore or make them become company lore, right? If you've learned a valuable lesson, make sure everybody knows about it. I tell that story about the six months of Unreal Tournament polishing and why it was important to us. I tell it all the time to new employees as we hire new folks. It's a story at Epic because I make it a story at Epic, not just because it's become one. So sometimes you can force it to happen. I think as a company leader, it's really important to preserve, we'll call it the oral tradition, right? It worked for our society for a couple hundred thousand years, and I think it's still the right way to run a company. Because really your job as a company leader is to make it be successful today, but also to survive you after you're gone. And a story is going to last a lot better than any numerical uh, benefits that your leadership brought to them, or sheets, or whatever the stuff that business guys talk about all the time with debt and equity and ratios. What they're going to remember is the time that we did that on Unreal Tournament or that we decided to go with the tech and throw away Unreal Engine 2 Warfare and go Unreal Engine 3 Gears of War. That's what's going to stick with the company and that's your job is to make your company successful today and make it successful long after you go. So that's our show everybody. Thanks a lot. I might have time for questions. I don't know. Probably not. I'll be in the back of the room after this for questions. Um, thanks very much for your attention. I hope, hope I was helpful. Cheers. Cheers.